0: the COVID-19 virus. I'd like to use that as our opening prayer tonight, okay? If I can, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll mail it to you uh, when I can. My, as I say, my desktop computer is broken. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, our divine physician, we ask you to guard and protect us from coronavirus, COVID-19, and all serious illness. For all those who have died from it, have mercy. For those that are ill now, grant healing. For those searching for a remedy, enlighten them. For medical caregivers helping the sick, strengthen and shield them. For those working to contain the spread, grant them success. For those who are afraid, grant peace. May your precious blood be our defense and salvation. By your grace, may you turn the evil of disease into moments of consolation and hope. May we always fear the contagion of sin more than any illness. We abandon ourselves to your infinite mercy. Amen. 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 Our Lady, health of the
1: sick, pray for us. St. Joseph,
2: pray, pray for us. Father
1: and Son of the Holy Spirit.
2: Amen.
0: Amen. Beautiful prayer, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so tonight um, we're going to discuss uh, the role of St. Peter and the papacy in the church. Uh, you remember, in previous lessons, we spoke about how the bishops of the world constitute a single college they're not simply lone rangers uh, in their ministry in a particular place but they are they are called by their very consecration and ordination uh, as as bishops to be the one body throughout the world to be one body one collegial college which we call the apostolic college so that in that way they're able to speak with one voice on matters pertaining to faith and morals okay now tonight the very important element uh, in this college is the role of the bishop of rome the successor of saint peter so we're going to to understand that we need to look at the status and the mission of saint peter first of all in the new testament recall that uh, we previously i think we previously discussed in the biblical section that whenever the apostles are mentioned saint peter is always mentioned first Uh, that wasn't just a coincidence that was deliberate right he was always the spokesman for all the apostles his name is please listed first now we're going to look first of all at some very key texts both in the new testament and also in the old testament that i think will give us some. Uh, a segue into our topic, okay? And some of this may be a review for some of you. I mean, this isn't rocket science, okay? We want to look, first of all, the, perhaps the classic text, is Matthew 16, 13 to 20, where we see Jesus in the the area of Caesarea Philippi. Um, He asks his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they answered, well we'll just, well, we'll just go through it. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I mean I am? Those of you who know me best, who are closest to me, my intimate followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter, under divine inspiration, says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's look at this text in greater detail. So what our Lord asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So here he's asking them about popular opinion. What do people in general um, say about who I am? And the apostles answered by giving the popular opinions uh, of the day. Uh, Some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Or you're the prophet Elijah, or you're Jeremiah, or some other prophet from the Old Testament. People actually thought that about Jesus. Those were the, the opinions circulating at that time. But then he asked his closest followers, who do you say that I am? And only Peter answers with the truth. You are the Messiah, the son of living God. And our Lord recognizes that Peter didn't come to that understanding on his own, but was inspired by God to know the truth about Christ's identity. So then Peter, uh, Jesus appoints Peter as the visible head of his church on earth. And he changes his name to rock. On this rock, I will build my church. So here, Jesus is being presented as an architect who builds. The church is built on the apostle Peter. In other words, Peter becomes the foundation stone of the church, making him the visible head and number one in the family of God. Without a solid foundation stone, the house is going to fall. So St. Peter is the foundation, but he's not the founder of the church. The founder, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter is the visible head of the church. Jesus is the invisible head of the church. But because he is number one in the church, we call this the primacy of Peter in Catholic doctrine, the primacy of Peter, more about that later. There are many, many other proofs in the New Testament Uh, where Peter is seen as being number one, and later on, I will list about 15 of them for you. Then Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are a biblical symbol for authority and power. The one who has the keys can open and close the doors. The power of the keys, as we say in Catholic theology, has to do with church discipline and church teaching particularly in matters of faith and morals. And from that power flows the use of, for example, uh, in terms of church discipline, censures, the power of excommunication, of interdict, of absolution, the imposition of penances, and other legislative and governmental powers. The Catechism number 881 tells us, who would like to read back for us here? Go ahead, James. Catechism 881. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the I've rock seen. of his church. I've never
1: seen him. Gave him the keys of his church and instituted him a shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. This pastoral office okay. of Peter and the other apostles to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. Okay now all right so this Matthew
0: 16 is a very important and key text uh, to understand the role of Peter but, and also his successors but there's another text that you might not be so familiar with and I'd like to read this in total because because it's, a, it's not familiar to most people. Isaiah chapter 21, verses 15 to 23. So, um, who would like to, to read that for us?
2: I'll do it. Thank you. Good, oh, good. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is master of the household and say to him, what right do you have here? Who are your relatives here that you have cut out that you have cut out a tomb here for yourself? Rock. Uh, cutting a tomb on the height and carving a habitation for yourself in the rock. The Lord is about to hurt, hurl you away violently, my fellow. He will seize firm hold on you, whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there your splendid chariots shall lie. O oh, you disgrace to your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your post. On that day, I will call my servant, Gellicim, son of Hilpiah, and will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his ancestral house. Okay, thank you. So Shetna,
0: well, first of all, there existed in ancient Israel um, a very special office that was known as the master of the palace, sometimes also the prime minister, okay? It was a very powerful position, second only to the king himself. So in this text, Shedna was was a master of the palace, but he wasn't exercising his office worthily He was using it for his own ends. And so God is basically saying to him, you're out of here. And he's going to appoint instead Eliakim son of Ilkiah to take his place as master of the palace. The master of the palace had a master key. Um, It says that I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Which, which could override and all other lesser keys. No other key could override his key. And when he closed the door with his key, that door stayed closed. When he opened the door with his keys, that door remained open. So here it is called the key of the house of David. It gave the master of the palace tremendous authority. The master of the palace also from the text we can, we can see I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. So he wore special vestments to set him apart from others and to show others that he held the office of master of the palace. All official documents had to have his seal of approval. Um, He ruled the entire land in the king's absence. In other words, he was the king's vicar. A vicar is someone who represents someone else and takes his place, especially when he is away. And the master of the palace was a father figure to the people. So now, let's look more closely at these two texts and see how they relate one to the other. Jesus had, as the divinely inspired, as the divine author of of scripture, huh? He had Isaiah Isaiah 22 in mind when he appointed Peter, the visible head of the church. When he gave Peter the power of the keys, he said, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The terms bind and loose are terms that mean to forbid or to permit, to forbid or to permit, in other words, Peter was given the authority to determine the rules for doctrine, religious teaching, and life. When it came to matters of, uh, when it comes to matters of faith and morals, uh, Peter and his successors have the power to bind and loose, what? The consciences of Catholics, of Christians. They don't make up their own rules, but teach what Christ wants them to teach. They teach the faith, what we are to believe, and they teach morals, how we are to live out that faith. So Jesus was really here, appointing Peter and his successors to be the masters of the palace in the house of God. Jesus is the true king, and when he returned to heaven after his ascension, he left Peter and the popes to govern, teach, and sanctify the entire church in his absence. He gave Peter and his successors full power and authority to do that in his name. And he said that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever issue they closed was closed. Whatever issue remained open was open. That means that Jesus himself would stand behind the teaching authority of the popes, okay? Last week we saw how um, John Paul, St. John Paul II, used the power of the keys uh, to close the door with his master key, the issue of women's ordination to the priesthood. That door will remain closed, okay? Peter and the popes are the masters of the palace. They hold the master key that no one can override, okay? When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open, okay? So when the Pope shuts the door on the issue of abortion or artificial contraception or same-sex relations and marriage and all of that, uh, it stays shut, okay? Also, interestingly, how do we identify the Pope? If you were, walk, last week, uh, this past week, God bless him, in spite of all the, 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 the coronavirus that's rampant in Rome, open close. Uh, Pope Francis left the oh. Vatican, and he was seen walking up one of the streets of Rome to visit one of the churches to pray for the victims. How would anybody there, let's say, looking out their window, recognize it was him, aside from his face? You have to unmute your phone if you sure speak. By cassock. Uh, by his white cassock, right. His white cassock. So the Pope will wear a special robe that sets apart, uh, sets him apart in his special office, right? Um he is also what? What do we call the Pope? How do we address him, Vinnie? Vinnie, I can't hear your voice. And that's a shame. <laughs> Holy Father, right? He's a father figure to the people of God, right? He's our father. He went to this church in Rome as a father, uh, grieving over what's happening not only in Italy, but throughout the whole world, to to pray um, in this special chapel dedicated to, I think it was to Our Lady. He has full and supreme power and authority over the whole church. He is the, what is one of his titles? The Vector of Christ, right? The one who represents Jesus on this earth. The one who takes our Lord's place on this earth, who teaches and governs in his name and with his authority, okay? Yes, he's only a man, but I mean, who else was God gonna give his authority to, right? Not angels, he gave his authority to men, weak, fallible men, weak men. So you see how these two texts beautifully come together uh, to present this another way to understand the, what the fuck But There's a, yet another text that we need to consider. The idea of strengthening or confirming the brethren. And we see that in Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In the original Greek in which which this, this gospel was written, the you in this passage is a very individual you. The you is a reference to Peter. So it is clear that among the 12, Peter is given a particular role given to him by Christ directly to strengthen, some translations use the expression, confirm the brethren in the faith. And we see this role being exercised in some of the documents of the popes uh, in which he's doing precisely that, right? Strengthening or confirming his brother bishops within the college of bishops. And he does that by articulating in, in a very clear way uh, the age-old doctrine of the Church. Okay? So, for example, when um, Pope Pius XII promulgated the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, he was confirming the bishops in this truth of the faith. Okay? Um, and John Paul II, when he he even said it in, I believe, in the we uh, had we had the. We had the um, the document I sent to you last time uh, where he says, so in my office to confirm the brethren, he uh, definitively declared that the church has no authority to ordain women to the priesthood. So he he used that very expression, okay? Now we also have this idea of the Petrine succession, just as we saw with the apostolic succession, Uh, there's a Petrine succession, right? Just as the College of Bishops succeeds the College of Apostles in governing the church, the successor of St. Peter succeeds St. Peter in the primacy, in primacy. Now this idea is rejected by Protestantism on the basis of the principle of Sola Scriptura. Uh, Do you all know what Sola Scriptura is? Yeah. I hope that scripture is the sole rule of faith. They reject sacred tradition as one of the channels of divine revelation. They say that there's no clear passage in the scripture that says that Peter's role continued in the church after Peter's death. Now there's a very good reason why there's no mention of the Petrine succession in the New Testament. And that is that the text of the New Testament is too early to chronicle the succession of bishops of Rome. But remember, uh, was it last week or the week before, I gave you that uh, quote from St. Irenaeus from the second century, in which at the end, he begins to list all the successors of Peter up until his time. So even so, the New Testament does highlight aspects of the Petrine ministry that must endure together with the church herself. So we, we heard from Matthew sixteen, uh, the the foundation, the rock, right? Um, if you if you build a building on a rock foundation, the building's not going to stand, is it? If the rock foundation is taken away, the fuck is this? Is Get the fuck away, out of here. The rock foundation must last as long as the building stands. So this role that Christ gave to Saint Peter. Um, to be the one on whom the foundation and unity of the College of Bishops and the Church is established must also be permanent. The Church is gonna exist till the end of time. There has to be a rock foundation for the Church in every age till the end of the world, okay? Till there is no more need for it. And we already treated the reasons that the College of Bishops must be regarded as permanent in the Church. And so, if so, it it must have a head the College of Bishops also, have, they have to have a head, right? As long as there is the College of Bishops, there must be a head of the college, okay? I hope you're getting all these points down because it'll come in handy, not only for your own understanding, but also in, in, when you're teaching the faith, uh, if, you, if you end up teaching the faith, um, the fuck? explain it to others, right? And as an apologetic tool, to uh, refute the errors of Protestantism, okay? So from that fact alone, we can reason to the necessity of the continuation of the ministry of Saint Peter and his primacy in the church, as long as the church endures, okay? So it is the teaching of the Catholic church that the primacy of Peter had to continue in the church until the end of time, okay? No doubt about that at all, right? Uh, it was, in fact, it was Jesus' intention that Peter has successors until the end of time. Why would Jesus give all this power and authority to Peter and only to Peter? Uh, what would happen after Peter died? Who would continue to be the vicar of Christ? Who would be the master of the palace? Who would be the head of the college of bishops? Who would have the master key? Who would be the chief shepherd of the church? Who would be the universal pastor? Well, since the church was to exist until the end of time and Jesus said so, I am with you until the end of time, right? Then it makes sense that there had to be successors to the office of Peter until the end of time. There had to be someone who would have full and supreme authority over the whole church in every age in an unbroken line until Christ comes again at the end of the world, okay? So Jesus founded his church on this rock foundation of Peter, and there always has to be someone to be that rock foundation. There always had to be a Peter in every age who could be that rock foundation, who could be the head of the college of bishops, who would exercise full and supreme authority over the entire church. Uh, so the power of Peter had to be handed on down through the ages to others, okay? There should be no question about that. The question next is, why the primacy of the Roman Church? Why in Rome? The Petrine Ministry is specifically that of the one who presides over the whole college of bishops analogously to Peter's role within the Apostolic College. But who would that I be? I elements in the New Testament. Right? Could it be just any bishop? Um, there were thousands of bishops and dioceses throughout the world. <laughs> which one is the successor of peter well it is the constant tradition of the church dating back to the first century that the bishops of rome are the successors of peter now why is that right i'll tell you the reason why the bishops of rome are the successors of saint peter is that peter went to rome and he died a martyr's death there and was buried right under St. P- where St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is right now, on Vatican Hill. Peter himself says in uh, that he was in Rome in 1 Peter 5.13. Do you have that text in front of you? Yes. 1 P- did I put it on your handout? Yes, you did. Okay. Your sister church in Babylon,
3: chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son.
0: Hmm. Don't say Rome there, does it? it? says Babylon. I better explain it before Vinny asks a question. <laughs> Mark was a sort of secretary to St. Peter. Peter was wanted by the Roman authorities and he needed to disguise his whereabouts. In his private correspondence, which was easily intercepted by the the Roman authorities, he referred to his city of residence as Babylon, which was a code word for Rome. Okay? Babylon was a code word for Rome. This way the government wouldn't be as likely to search for him in Rome. In fact, the book of Revelation uses Babylon to refer to Rome six times. The Christians were suffering at the hands of the uh, Roman authorities, the Roman Empire, and that is that is dealt with in the book of Revelation. Okay? The book contains a promise that they would be helped by God and would overcome the suffering that they were enduring at the time. So let's look at Revelation 18, 1 to 3.
2: You have that there, right? Okay, somebody just read that for us, please. Anyone? Anyway. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath for fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her, her luxury. So the promise here is that Babylon, i.e., Rome, that has been persecuting the people of God,
0: will one day herself fall. They used the word Babylon as a code word for Rome, as opposed to Antioch or Alexandria or any other major city in the ancient world, because Babylon had been that empire that invaded and defeated Jerusalem and led the ancient people of God into exile. Remember that? The Babylonian exile. So Rome was likewise persecuting God's people. And so Rome was, in a sense, the new Babylon, right? So that's why they use Babylon as the code word for Rome. Okay. And there are numerous uh, historical references to, to back up that claim, huh? Uh, St. Clement of Rome in 97 AD, uh, St. Ignatius of the Antioch in 107 AD, St. Irenaeus in 180 AD, um, and so on. And St. Paul too, who, who ministered in Rome and was martyred there. Many of these early literary witnesses uh, to to his presence there, um, St. Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Romans. He said, "I do not order you as Peter and Paul did. Okay. So because the city of Rome had a particularly close relationship with both Peter and Paul and both ended their lives there or martyred there, uh, it is the bishop of that church who is the successor of Peter. Okay. Uh, why not Paul? Because he also died there? Well, because he wasn't given the primacy by Christ directly. He was given a role uh, to be the apostle to the Gentiles by Christ directly, uh, but not to be the rock foundation of the church, okay? And early Christians preserved the memory of Peter's martyrdom and his final resting place on Vatican Hill, uh, which was by the way, excavated in the mid 20th centuries. So we'll talk more about that later. So local churches everywhere had recourse, reco- there's another reason, local churches had recourse everywhere to Rome uh, as the place where their own local ecclesial heritage could be authenticated uh, as, as rooted aposto- apostolically by virtue of its conformity with Rome's own heritage. Okay? So they looked to Rome to check their own conformity with their heritage as an apostolic church. What I'm to say, and in his role of primacy over the whole church, Rome was uh, the only place that was ever looked to for that purpose. No other bishop in any other see has ever claimed to be the successor of Saint Peter. Okay? That's a historical fact. But Rome's primacy as a local church can only be exercised in and through her bishop. So it is precisely the Bishop of Rome that has consistently been held universally among the churches of the East and the West to be the successor of St. Peter in primacy over the whole church. Though there have sometimes been disagreements and are today certainly concerning the the exact nature of that primacy, we will discuss that uh, later. Let us look at Catechism Entry 883. Vinnie, would you read that for us, please? You have to unmute. You have to unmute your uh, button. Uh, your your button there. We can't hear you. Can you hear me
4: now? Yes, I can. You were right. Um, what am I reading now? 883.
0: Let's Go ahead. What, uh, Catechism Entry 883.
4: The college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor as bed. As such, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church. But this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff. Okay, so I think on one of your midterm exam questions, I asked this. Who exercises full and supreme authority over the universal church? The answer was simple.
0: The College of Bishops in union with the Pope, never apart from him, okay? Now, let's look at the development of the papacy and the exercise of the Petrion of the Ministry in history a little bit, just a little history lesson. I'm not going to, it's not exhausted by any means for that. You'll have to talk to Father Bruno, okay? We see very early on the development of this unique office of Peter's. We're going to look at some examples in which the early popes exercised that authority that shows them to be the head of the College of Bishops. First of all, there were conflicts in various parts of the Christian world as to when, for example, Easter should be celebrated. Some argued that it should be celebrated on the same day uh, that the Jews celebrated Passover. Others argued for a Sunday. Well, the settling of the controversy over the date of Easter uh, took place by Pope Victor I, about 189, he ruled from 189 to 199. He took kind of a heavy hand about it. Uh, And so St. Irenaeus urges him not to break communion with the churches of Syria, for example, over the issue, um, recognizing then the importance of the various local churches' communion with Rome. The very fact that St. Irenaeus was urging Pope St. Victor uh, not to excommunicate the bishops of his Syria, because they were arguing for a different point of view, they recognized that being in communion with the Bishop of Rome was essential to being in communion. With the Catholic Church. To be out of communion with Rome was to be out of communion with
2: everyone in the church. And so Rome and her bishop had a very key role at
0: this very early point in history. Another example that's very interesting, especially because of the importance of the scriptures for many Christians, uh, who denied the role of the Bishop of Rome as the successor Peter on the basis of sola scriptura. A key role was played by the roman church in the formulation of one unified biblical canon it was important that all christians recognize the same biblical books as canonically inspired there were some minor disagreements about which books should be considered inspired one of the ways that this was settled was that many churches throughout the world wanted to make sure they were following the same biblical list that rome followed And so, Pope Damasus called a synod in Rome in 382 to write down and establish an official list of biblical books that were to be accepted as sacred and canonically inspired. And its decisions come down to us in a document that's traditionally attributed to Pope uh, Galatius. And that list that was followed in Rome then was followed by all of the churches. another example. Whenever there was an ecumenical council, even if it was called by the emperor, it was always presided over by the Bishop of Rome or at least through his legates. It was crucial that the Bishop of Rome presided or by the legates that he sent to the council. That lent validity to the council. Without it, the council had no validity. So in order to be binding, the acts of various ecumenical councils had to be approved by the popes. Okay, these are just four simple examples in history. Why did you fucking just but listen More than to that? that, the primacy of the popes was recognized by at least three councils. Um, Florence, the Council of Florence, Vatican I, and Vatican II. Now, now, the word, somebody needs to mute their button because I hear myself being talked over. Okay. The word primacy is from the Latin word primus, which means first. So primacy just means first in rank. Right? To hold the primary position is to hold, obviously, the number one position. So Peter and Peter and his successors have two kinds of primacy. This is very important. The first one we call the primacy of honor. The primacy of honor. The primacy of honor indicated that the popes deserve marks of distinction and respect in public gatherings. And that's evident by the respect given to the pope by other members of the church, but also by world dignitaries. When a pope visits another country, he is treated as a dignitary. He's usually met by the prime minister or the president. In our case, the president of the United States would greet him at the airport, okay? Um, treated as a head of state of the Vatican City State. And he's usually honored by that presidential greeting party. He has meetings with the head of state of the nation. There's a state dinner in his honor usually, right? Uh, and you know what? Many Protestants are willing to grant the pope uh, that kind of primacy. I mean, it's hard to deny. Just the next time a pope visits the United States or some other country, just put on the television, you can see there's marks of respect, there's marks of honor. But the Catholic Church claims much, much more. There's also what we call, the second one, a primacy of jurisdiction, primacy of jurisdiction. And that means that the popes possess full and supreme legislative, executive, and, jur- and judicial power over the entire church. The Council of Florence makes that clear in its sixth session. Um, maybe somebody there would like to read that for us. Douglas But unmute your, your Button, your button there so okay, button. we also define that the Holy Apostolic
1: See and the Roman Pontiff holds the primary primacy over the whole world, and the Roman pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles,
4: and that he is the true vicar of Christ, the head of the whole church, and the father and teacher of all Christians. And to him was committed in Blessed
1: Peter, the full power of pending ruling and governing the whole church, as is contained also in the acts of ecumenical councils and in the sacred canons. Okay, Vatican Council I in 1870 taught that a primacy of jurisdiction had been conferred upon St. Peter directly by
0: Christ. It's not simply conferred to him by the other bishops. The bishops didn't elect him themselves, right? It comes from Jesus himself and is passed on to his successors. So let's read through that. Uh, Joan, perhaps. Joan here. Hi, Joan. uh,
2: We therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter the apostle by Christ the Lord for it was to Simon alone, to whom he had already said, you shall be called Cephas, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, addressed these solemn words. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound even in heaven, and whatever you shall release on earth shall be released even in heaven. And it was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief, pastor, and ruler over all his fold by the words, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. If anyone says that the blessed apostle Peter was not constituted by Christ the Lord as the prince of the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that he received immediately and directly from Jesus Christ our Lord only a primacy of honor and not a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, let him be anathema.
0: Let him be anathema. you know what that means? Right.
2: Let him be damned. hmm Let him be
0: damned to hell. They didn't uh, pussyfoot around back then no now this primacy was for the sake of the unity of the whole college of bishops let's look at catechism entry 882 george please unmute yourself go. the pope bishop of rome and peter's successor is the
2: perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the
0: whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. So as supreme pastor of the universal church, he has jurisdiction over every member of the church, and he can freely exercise it. He's not bound by a decision of an ecumenical council, because without his approval, the decisions of that council would not be valid. Uh, he's not bound by, the, by any other authority. Okay? Uh, by the way, this is the reason for the existence of the Vatican City State. Uh, In previous centuries, there was a temporal state of the papal states in central Italy, uh, which was the way the popes maintained their independence from secular governments and didn't get coerced in the governance of the church. Now it's only a small patch of land uh, that is contained completely within the city of Rome, but it preserves its autonomy um, and the autonomy of the pope so he can govern the church freely without Italian government interference. The fact, though, that the Pope is not bound by anyone in his primacy of jurisdiction doesn't mean that he's not accountable to anyone, right? He is responsible to the word of God, which has been entrusted to him above all, right? He's morally bound to preserve the unity of the church, right? Um, But there are no juridical obligations, and he can freely exercise that office. For example, maybe I already told you this, but I remember when I took Canon Law in the seminary, our professor of Canon Law was telling us how, this was around the time when the new code of Canon Law was uh, coming out in 1983. Apparently, the code was written, revised from 19, the 1917 code was revised and um, was presented to Pope John Paul II, who then took the draft and with a pen in hand, he went through and he made whatever changes he wanted to make. He added this, deleted that, scratched out whole paragraphs, including the one uh, gentlemen who are studying to be deacons. Uh, originally, the 1983 code said that if you are married uh, and you're a deacon, permanent deacon, and your wife passed away, you would be free to remarry. John Paul took the red pen in hand and he deleted that whole sentence, so that you are not free to remarry. Maybe he had it in mind that, which has happened quite often, that if a, a permanent deacon's wife dies, maybe he'll consider becoming a priest. He wouldn't be able to become a priest if he was remarried. But if he's not remarried, he could think about discern of priestly vocation. Maybe that, I don't know if that was something he had in mind. But the point is, he had the authority to change that whole thing take the code of canon law and revise it any way he saw fit. And then once he did that, it was reprinted and that became the code as we know it today, okay? Vatican II, again, of course we'd expect this, reaffirmed papal primacy in its dogmatic constitution on the church in Lumen Gentium, number 8 So who would like to read that for us? I don't wanna get worse, please. Unmute
1: your button. Lumen Gentium number 18. This sacred council following closely in the footsteps of the first Vatican council with that council teaches and declares that Jesus Christ, the eternal shepherd, established his holy church, and apostles as he himself had been sent by the father. And he willed that their successors, namely the bishops, should be shepherds in his church, the consummation of the world. And in order that the episcopate itself might be one and undivided, he placed blessed Peter over the other apostles and instituted in him a permanent and visible source and foundation of unity of faith and communion. And all this teaching about the institution, the perpetuity, the meaning and the reason for the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff and of his infallible magisterium, this sacred council yet proposes to be firmly believed by all the faithful. Continuing in that same undertaking, this council is resolved to declare and proclaim before all men the doctrine concerning bishops, the successors of the apostles, who together with the successor of Peter the vicar of Christ, the visible head of the whole church, ever in the house of the living God. Okay, that's very well put by uh, Vatican II. We will have more on the teaching office of the Pope uh, in a later lesson. Okay? Uh, papal infallibility is not going to be covered tonight. Uh, that's going to be taught in the lecture on the
0: teaching office of the church, the magisterium. That's uh, something we have to wait until then uh, to, to, to talk about, okay? But the relationship between the Pope's powers and those of the bishops, the Pope is not the source, remember this, the Pope is not the source of the bishop's authority within the local church. He doesn't bestow on the local bishop the faculties to govern his local church since these come to him by sacramental ordination and his canonical mission. The canonical mission gives him to quote uh, the the decree on on the office of bishops from Vatican uh, II, all the ordinary, proper, and immediate authority which is required for the exercise of their pastoral office. Okay. So even so, though, the Roman pontiff can reserve for himself either specific cases uh, or specific exercises of authority for the good of the universal church, right? Um, he did that, I think John Paul did that when he was going through the Code of Canon Law in 1983. He didn't consult the College of Bishops uh, and get their opinion uh, before he, he did that. He did that solely on his own authority, okay? But other examples would be the power of the, um, uh, of the Pope to appoint local bishops uh, the reservation of uh, absolution, of certain excommunications or other censures, um, the canonical establishment of Episcopal commissions uh, that uh, kind of transcend national boundaries, things like that. That wasn't always the case. In earlier centuries, there were elections for local bishops, uh, and even in Eastern churches today by, uh, by a synod. But today the Pope reserves the right to appoint Local bishops, so they have the natural role of moderating the unity of the College of Bishops, uh, but they can also reserve things to themselves if they want. Okay. Um, I remember when this lecture sucks. The uh, what was it? The the, the, the Lefebvrites, right? That they broke. They didn't accept the Second Vatican Council. When they when they went into schism this is now a number of them have come back in the the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. They're now in union with Rome and can maintain many of their traditions. But before that, um, I recall when I was a younger priest, uh, one of their bishops, it might even have been Bishop uh, Marcelo Febre himself, he ordained three men, three priests, uh, as bishops without the permission of... John Paul II. And he and those three bishops were excommunicated directly by Pope John Paul II. Okay. So John Paul II exercised his apostolic papal authority at the time to formally excommunicate those three men who were ordained contrary to church teaching. But only the Pope can appoint bishops. Right? And they disobeyed that and they paid the, the highest penalty the church can impose. Uh, I don't know if those have been lifted. I think they have been. I think actually they have been um, because those men repented and recanted, you know. Um, but that's another example of the Pope taking things, taking matters into his own hands when he sees fit. So while the question of the Roman primacy, it's still it's still one on which Eastern and Western churches as well as other non-Catholic communities remain divided. Uh, The primacy gives the Catholic Church a powerful instrument, though, for preserving unity among Catholics and seeking unity with those who are uh, divided from us. We're going to have more um, about those tensions with the various churches uh, in regards to the papacy a little bit later. But many times the unity of the church has been preserved by the teaching of the popes. It's a gift. The papacy is a great gift to the church. Now, remember earlier I told you that I would give you at least 15 more examples of of Peter's unique role and primacy. Okay, so here they are. Number one, aside from the ones I already gave you, Christ teaches from Peter's boat and a miraculous catch of fish follow so perhaps that's a metaphor for the pope as a fisher of men okay. and women number two peter was the first apostle to enter the empty tomb on that first easter sunday morning number three peter is specified by an angel as the leader and representative of the apostles in Matthew 16, 7. The angel said, tell his disciples and Peter. Peter was specifically mentioned. Number four, Peter is regarded by Jesus as the chief shepherd after himself when he said, feed my lambs, feed, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, singularly by name, and over the universal church even though others have had a similar but subordinate role we see that in John 21 15-17 Acts 20-28 1 Peter 5-2 number 5 Peter alone among the apostles is mentioned by name as having been prayed for by Jesus in order that his faith may not fail he didn't say that to any other apostle in Luke 22, verse 32. Peter alone in that same chapter um, is exhorted by Jesus to strengthen or confirm the brethren. He didn't say that to anyone else. That's number six. Number six. I don't know. What Father, can you repeat number six,
2: please?
0: yes peter alone among the apostles was exhorted by christ to strengthen and confirm the christian brethren number seven saint peter is the first to speak and only one recorded after pentecost so he was the first to preach the gospel in the church era. That's Acts 2, 14 to 36. He was the first to speak and the first to preach and the only one recorded. Acts 2, 14 36. Why do I I never this fucking ugly fuck? Peter worked the first miracle in the age of the church, healing a lame man, in Acts 3, 6 to 12. First miracle wrought by Peter was wrought by Peter. Number 9. Peter is regarded by the common people as the leader of the Christian community. We see that in Acts 5, 15. Quote, as Peter came by came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people wanted his shadow to fall on some of them. That's how how much they looked to him as the leader of the community. Number 10, Peter was the fourth traveling missionary and the first to exercise what we call the visitation of the churches, Acts 9. 32 to 38, and verse 43. Acts 9, 32 to 38, and verse 43. Paul's missionary journeys don't begin until Acts 13.
4: Can you repeat number 10, Father, please? Yes, Peter was the first traveling missionary
0: to visit the churches. In Acts 9, 32 to 38, and verse 43. We don't see the missionaries' journeys of Paul until later in in the book of Acts, in in Acts 13. Number 11, Cornelius is told by an angel to seek out St. Peter for instruction in Christianity in Acts 10, 21 to 22. He didn't send, Cornelius didn't send them to anyone else. The angel, I mean, uh, the angel didn't send Cornelius to anyone else. It was Peter. In fact, it says, I am the, Peter said to them, he went down to the men and he said, I am the one you are looking for. You don't have to get all this. I'm just reading it from the scripture. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and god fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Do I need to Peter is the first to receive the Gentiles into the fellowship of the Christian church after a revelation from God. Acts 10, 9 to 48. Acts 10, 9 to 48. First to receive Gentiles into the church. Number 13, Peter presided over and is preeminent in the first church-wide council of Christianity, the Council of Jerusalem, mentioned in Acts fifteen seven to eleven. Number fourteen, Saint Paul distinguishes the Lord's post-resurrection appearances to St. Peter from those two other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, four to eight. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus do the same in Luke 24, 34, even though they themselves had just seen the risen Jesus within the previous hour. Luke 24, 33. finally St. Peter's name is mentioned more than all the other disciples put together Nine, 191 times to be precise wow. 162 as Peter or Simon Peter 23 as Simon and 6 as Cephas and John is next in frequency with only 48 appearances.
1: Father? Yes? Could you repeat 13 and 14, please?
0: Yes, 13. Peter presided over the first uh, worldwide church council, the Council of Jerusalem, in Acts 15, 7 to 11. I'm giving you these for your own benefit. I'm not gonna ask you to remember fifteen uh, all fifteen in the exam. Anymore. I'm not gonna drive you crazy with that. Bullshit. But you should know, you know, you should know these because that's great it's great apologetics, you know? When a lot of Catholics don't understand the primacy of Peter. Can you please turn your cameras off? Which other one did you want me to repeat? Fourteen, 14. did you say? Yes, fourteen. 14, Yeah. in in, in Saint Paul makes a distinction between the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to St. Peter, from those of the other apostles. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's past your time of a break, Um, would you like to take a break? Want to go, you know, maybe a restroom break or go to your refrigerator, something to <laughs> drink? Okay. I'd like a little break because I'm, I'm getting a little hoarse.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh,
0: when, I, when we come back, we're going to talk about the tomb of St. Peter in Rome, and then we'll get on to the next section, okay?
2: Okay.
0: All right, so take your, take what, 10 minutes, 15? What do you need? 10 for me, Father. All right, 10, 15, 15 whatever. 15, fucking cunt. <laughs>
2: 15, Okay,
0: go ahead. Right, take your 15, Daniel. Get up and stretch my legs here. <coughs>
3: That's not fair.
2: Is it something
1: Shut the fuck up.
2: Very sad time.
1: Yeah. I'm not to break. I don't think I'm sorry. Follow OK.
4: This no, In general. Don't give it to me now, but everything's going find in the beginning, I, I was muted on their site, but I didn't know it.
1: in the other room doing their class via Zoom because she doesn't have a computer anywhere.
2: Oh, please. But
1: now with the uh, with the closing of the uh, of all events in that, the is gonna be closed after this week. Uh, she's not gonna be able to come in and do it, and uh, I'm probably gonna leave here at five if I am allowed to work. Uh, at least if uh, I go home at five, so I can get home to do this class at home. Wow. Another poor person's gonna do that, so. But.
4: No. John the, John, the worst part about this is that I don't get to see you.
2: I know. Well, you can see me if you just scroll
4: across. I know, hey, no, no, no. I, I was hoping we could get a permanent link. I'm so tired. <laughs> well, you guys could, you guys could set up a, a private Zoom. You sure. know what? I think John would love that. Yeah, you, you know? guys could be a private
1: study group.
2: You no, then then. Vinnie, we
1: were, we were hoping that uh, you'd only be get, only be on audio. Oh, yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> you have any yeah, to Only well, audio?
1: Yeah, I, I think no was, was hoping it was only video, which you couldn't hear. <laughs> nice, Will, very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like when Will makes fun of other people, you know, Paul? You know. Especially you, I guess, Vinnie, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Up, up the, I miss up. I miss seeing Will here in the library before class.
4: Yeah. I always thought it's about time class will disappear. Not to look at your fucking. Face. Will Will is uh, quite a quite a conscientious student, as is John, of course. But that goes without saying. <laughs> uh, I
1: I miss conversing with James because James is a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, he he's a very smart guy. Yeah. I'd like to learn some Latin from him. And uh, we just grew up right to It was about the end. So I was talking about another student here doing his computer stuff.
4: You, probably, you, you, you want to learn a little Latin then. Is that what you saying? Yeah, I'd like to. I, I downloaded a course from the great courses in Latin. It's like 37 lessons. It's like, holy mackerel. And I, I haven't even got through the first half of the first one. But, uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know. But James, he <laughs> <sometimes laughs> pronounces those words. I'm glad he got that reading with all the Latin words and things of the last <laughs> of yeah, awesome. They're really fun to start. we a discipline the Holy mackerel. That was <laughs> a great thing. <laughs> You know what, James J- is good, and then you get it. James, James is good, but he wasn't an old boy in the lab, right, like I was, so. Oh, you <laughs> Wow. I go to the Extraordinary Forum every week, so I know a lot
1: of responses, but I'm a little old to be an older boy now. You're such a short woman. You do to be seen and not heard, okay, James. me
4: <laughs> Oh oh, 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 oh. It's like in my family. put myself, back on mute, so
1: you don't hear
4: me Oh, no, that's not good, that's not good. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. One of my daughters took Latin, and it's great for learning other languages because there's so many. Yeah, that really is, that's a revelation. Bible. It's great for the SATs, for example. Yeah. Right. It's
1: great for the
2: SATs for example. Yeah, reason. I think if
1: I, I was looking at that reading and I said, Oh boy, if I get to that reading and then James is the one who got to read it, I says, I'm just gonna have to pronounce it in my best Italian, you know? So I'll get it. real Italian s I'm afraid to ask a question. I'm afraid to interrupt the pro uh, no. the well, I'm, I, I, I'm
4: unloading on him as soon as he gets back because I was mute for a while.
1: <laughs> you, see, <laughs> you wrote down all your questions. <laughs> I, I did, I
4: wrote down a couple of them.
1: Yeah. I get you know, I, I was getting a kick. I tried to take a screenshot of him. When when he sits back, that light behind him makes it look like he's got a halo. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. You've got to be fuck I certainly didn't notice it over Joan,
4: I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I took him for, I told Will this, but I took him for spiritual theology, which I I thought was the best course I took in the entire program. He was so great for that, and yeah, he's
1: got a saintly kind of element to him. He's, uh, one of the things I like is, I've asked him a couple of questions by email, and he writes such a nice, he doesn't write a short answer,
4: he writes ask, wonderful ask, answer back. Ask Will what he did to, for me last week. Yeah. He wrote, wrote like a, I wrote, a dissertation. I wrote, I wrote him a paragraph question on on the census fidelium. And, you know, I tried not to like be a, uh, Heretic I'm writing the question. You're that okay. Really? That's right. But I shared with Will, so will knows
1: what I'm talking up. Yeah. It was wow, I'd like to see that. That's great. Sorry, we can't, we can't be showing that to everybody right? OK. Uh, I'm okay. joking, I'm joking, of course. I had asked him a question when he was talking about the, the priest being priests forever. I said, well, what about the priests that leave the priesthood? You know, are they? Uh, is, is there a service or is there an, an unsacramental uh, thing that goes on to their they power of the priesthood? And his answer basically that? was, uh, the power they have, they will have forever. They can still confess the bread and wine into the uh, body and blood of Christ, but they do it illicitly, which of course I had to look up because I don't know these words. And that test basically means illegally. But uh, they can still, in an emergency, they can still do it. But, you know,
4: not all the sacraments continue into heaven. For example, marriage, we just promised to death to us part. I know, that always bothered me. You know, on the other side,
1: we're all free agents, so I'm you. <laughs> you make it sound like we can go dating yeah. when we get to heaven.
4: <laughs> oh, No, uh, I always tell I like that. <laughs>
1: don't, don't worry, she wants this to end, too. <laughs> it's like the uh, meatloaf song, where he's uh, praying to God, he's praying yeah. to the end of the time, yeah. right, right, that's it, you know, he promised the, the lover until the end of the time, and now he's praying until the end of the time, uh-oh, here comes Father Julio. Yeah. Yes, now, you know, uh, I just got an email,
4: like ten after seven, but I was teaching a class, from Will DeCamp, is he not there? So. Huh? Here. Yeah. He did one of the readings. Well, I got an I got an email from
0: allegedly from you at ten after seven, saying I'm waiting for an invitation
1: to the meet to the class. And wait a minute. My iPhones. Uh, I sent him the
0: link. You sent him. Yeah. Because Cynthia Harrison. And one of the seminarians helped me to set this up to send out the invitation for the meeting. And um, I was of the impression that everybody
1: received one. Bill, no, you got I, my, my link. Oh, yeah, I, I, that was a uh, pilot error. That was me. I was looking for another email instead of looking at the first one. I,
0: I okay, because I just sent you, I just responded to your email, and I sent you an invitation. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have two invitations well yes, no, i glad you've been here so you didn't miss, a, miss everything well, no, yes, no, I, was no, I missed a little bit Will is a you little lecture so exciting, you know, it's so titillating Will is a little bit of a needy guy so he needs you to invite him every week That's what maybe you should invite him back after the break he so exactly. put, put it on mute please alright <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Father, can I ask you a couple of questions before we start? Yeah. A um, couple, couple of brief ones, Well, first, uh, sometimes James, the quote, brother of Jesus, is referred to as the leader of the head of the church in Jerusalem. Yes. What, what how does that play into Peter's role? It has no It has we'll no on. Uh, bearing on Peter's role. Uh, he was uh, James was the first bishop of Jerusalem. Okay, so the second question is, has there ever been a case where the Pope has disagreed with the College of Bishops acting together? No, not that I Authority over the church. When they act as a college, in union with the Pope, the local ordinary has supreme authority within his own local diocese his local church as we would say diocese or archdiocese um, and can exercise that at any time um, as long as he doesn't break faith uh, he's okay I mean you know we see for example like in the current crisis um, Cardinal Dolan exercising supreme authority over his church the Church of New York right. Bishop Caggiano over Bridgeport Uh, Leonard Blair, Blair, Archbishop Blair over Hartford, and so on and so forth, all declaring uh, that they are going to suspend masses, public masses. That's an exercise of Episcopal authority for the common good. The Pope's not gonna interfere with that. He knows that they're exercising, uh, you know, to to the extent that this even gets to him in Rome. He's got his own problems to deal with over there. the pope's not going to interfere, you know, with these decisions that are made at the local level. He gives the bishops a lot of leeway to, to, you know, they have the authority. They come from
1: Christ through their ordination and their canonical mission. He's not, he's not like you know, you know, got to, they're not under a magnifying glass by the pope every day. He's got to make sure in the world is doing yep. everything they're supposed to be doing. Yep. Well, I think um, the fact that Rome uh, suspended their masters Uh,
2: gave them, uh, you know, uh, they said that that was something that they could do.
0: Yeah, but they could have done it even if Rome had not. Sure. That's what I'm saying. They had the authority to do that in their own diocese. The only time the Pope intervenes is when a bishop breaks faith or is openly teaching heresy or allowing heresy
1: to be taught in his diocese and doing nothing about it. Uh, that happened actually many years ago. I was a young priest in the diocese of uh, Archdiocese of Seattle, Washington. Uh, there were many, many serious problems going on there. Uh, I can't even tell you the name of the anymore uh, it so long ago, but what happened was John Paul II appointed uh, another bishop to go in and act as an administrator, to investigate to investigate the diocese,
0: and then he took over the authority over the local bishop, who was then removed. So the Pope will intervene in matters like that for the good of the faithful. If a bishop is not doing his job, if he's not if he's pastorally dere- derelict or um, he's, allowing, he's allowing the unsound doctrine to be taught or he himself begins to teach it, then the Pope can intervene directly. But normally, the College of Bishop functions very smoothly uh, when the bishops act in union with the Pope and tradition and, you know, constant teaching of the Church.
2: Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question, Joel? It does. Thanks
4: so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: question. Father, no. why do we
4: see uh, a bit of sniping by the bishops? Some... some Conservative bishops, not necessarily on matters of doctrine or morals, but at this pope. Uh, I mean, I don't think.
0: I think in general, well, I, I don't know. I've not seen. I'm not seeing sniping by the bishops. Well, actually, you're right. Uh, the cardinals, some of the cardinals, yes, the cardinals, right. Um, Well, because some of the times the Pope, uh, Francis, can be ambiguous in some of the things that he says that are taken out of context. So they ask him to explain what he means. But I have no doubt, trust me, I have no doubt that Francis is as orthodox as John Paul II was. There's nothing unorthodox about Francis. His whole style is just different. His whole pastoral style. I mean, how many popes will leave the Vatican and go walk up a street in Rome in the middle of a plague? To go pray in the chapel, you know. I mean, he he's got a mind; he has a mind of his own, Francis. Right. Okay. And, uh, that's what makes him lovable, I think. Yeah. See, I, I don't see why some, some some of the cardinals want to see the pope uh, behave in a certain way and uh, you know act pontifical all the time. Uh, very reserved, correct. Francis does not like that. Whereas what other popes would eat a meal by himself with maybe a few cardinals in his private suite, uh, Francis said, oh, I have none of that. He, he, he wants to be with the people. He wants to be with the sheep. He wants to be with, even with his own bishops. Uh, he'll pull a chair and pick it up himself and carry it over to the table and sit with people. Mm. And they'll say, oh, a pope shouldn't behave like that. You know, that's how i dignified, you know? Right. And we're not used to this kind of a papacy. But I mean, I've never heard a pope speak more about Satan than, than I mean, He's constantly, more, you know, beware of Satan. And he's, he's a, he's. He, I, I love him. I just personally love him. But he's, he's
4: just different. It just seems like to me that it, his emphasis a lot is on the mercy of God, and rather than the wrath of God. And yeah. And and some people don't like that emphasis. Well, they better get used to it because yeah. at the hour of death, there's only one thing all of us are going to need and that's the mercy
0: of God. Amen. That's all we're going to want. That's all we're going to need. Amen. Okay, any other questions? Moving on to the tomb of St. Peter well Rome. This is very interesting historically. At the close of the Mass
1: uh, for the year of mm-hmm. faith, which uh, was in... November 24th of 2013, Pope Francis venerated the relics of St. Peter
0: and displayed them for public veneration during the singing of the Nicene Creed, and it was a tremendous gesture of faith on his part. Here, okay. here you have Pope Francis, the 265th successor of St. Peter, holding the relics of the first pope and vicar of Christ, St. Peter, during the mass that unite the faithful uh, throughout the world. Such a gesture, I think, um, moves us to remember the earliest days of the church and our first pope. So after the Council of Jerusalem, which was in 49 AD, Peter returned to Rome and there he served as the bishop of the community and he held masses and homes. Uh, and during that time, he also um, uh, wrote his two letters in the New Testament, so on. Well, in 64 to 65 AD, the Emperor Nero set fire to Rome so that he could build his new palace. And he needed a scapegoat for that fire and he blamed the Christians. And that's recorded by uh, the ancient historian Tacitus. And there was a terrific, a horrific persecution followed that. And St. Peter himself was arrested and condemned to death during the time of Nero. He was taken to the Vatican Hill uh, uh, where the Circus of Caligula was at the time. Sometimes it's called the, Cir- the uh, Circus of Nero. It was it was a it was a chariot race course, and in fact, the Egyptian obelisk that stands at the center of Saint Peter's Square today—if you were to go to Saint Peter's Square, you'd see that Egyptian obelisk um, at the center there—marked uh, the center of that race course. Well, tradition holds that Saint Peter protested that he was not worthy to die as his Lord and Master. And he asked to be crucified upside down. Uh, Seneca, in his essay, uh, one of his essays, uh, described that upside down crucifixion as one of the gorier forms of punishment and torture. After Peter's death, and they obliged him, you know, and after his death, the faithful recovered Peter's body and they buried it in an acropolis northwest of of the circus where St. Peter's Basilica is now. And the faithful secretly venerated the uh, grave and they protected it from pagan desecration. Pope Anicetus, he was a pope from 155 to 166, uh, he built a memorial there to mark the grave and other popes were buried nearby as well. Well, in 330, the Emperor Constantine, who had legalized Christianity in 313, began a huge, building a huge basilica at the grave site to honor St. Peter. And the builders had to level the land, um, filling in the necropolis. And they purposely positioned the altar directly over the burial site of St. Peter. So when Pope Julius began construction on the present St. Peter's Basilica, in 1506 um, to replace the, the one that Constantine had built because it was, it was in disrepair. The high altar purposely remained right over the burial site of St. Peter. And then centuries passed. And when Pope Pius XI died uh, in February of 1939, workers started digging a new tomb in the sacred grottoes the level beneath the main floor of the basilica. And they uncovered that necropolis that I spoke of earlier. Uh, They found both pagan and Christian mausoleums. And Pope Pius XII gave permission to excavate the necropolis, including the area under St. Peter's High Altar. And the the, the work progressed very, very slowly at the time. Well, in 1950, Archaeologists uh, concluded they had found the grave of St. Peter, and we know that because there's Greek graffiti written into the marble uh, that marked the spot. Uh, Peter is within, it said in Greek. Um, other graffiti asked Peter to pray for uh, to pray for Jesus for deceased people. So we have some of the earliest accounts of prayers for the dead on the tomb of Peter inscribed in. Etched in the marble. Others were um, just common symbols like the Alpha and the Omega, the Cairo and so on. And some bones were found in that tomb. And one set, which originally had been buried in the earth, uh, were found in a secret marble repository in the graffiti wall. And these bones had been wrapped in a purple fabric with gold threads. And uh, they wondered, gee, could this be, could these be the bones of St. Peter the Apostle? Um, And so in the 1960s, anthropologists studied the bones. And the bones were mostly fragments um, with only a few being about six inches long. Um, And they included pieces of the cranium and the jaw, uh, including a tooth, a vertebrae, pelvis, um, legs, arms, and hands, and they concluded that the bones belonged to a man between sixteen and seventy years of age, about five feet seven inches tall, uh, and a robust, con- a robust constitution. Uh, that's an apt description of Saint Peter the Fisherman, I think. And the bones had been discolored by discolored by the earth, um, the purple and the gold cloth. Uh, very interesting it dated the cloth and the gold threads back to ancient rome and the ancient roman techniques of weaving and it was an extremely expensive cloth um, that was reserved for imperial honors um, making it fitting for the first pope then some interesting questions had to be addressed like uh why were there no feet bones They found bones from every other part, but not feet bones. Well, St. Peter was hung upside down as a criminal, um, so he wasn't entitled to a proper burial. The body of a criminal would have been dumped. The faithful must have bribed the executioners. This is the reasoning. The faithful must have bribed the executioners who simply severed the body from the feet nailed to the cross and gave it to them. And a a practice like that really wasn't so uncommon back then. The next thing was, why were the bones removed from the grave and placed in a secret repository? The brickwork of the repository dated to the reign of the Emperor Valerian, uh, 253 to 260. And Valerian intensified the persecution of the church. Um, He sealed the bones inside the marble graffiti wall uh, I mean, he didn't. The Christians that were being persecuted under Valerian sealed the bones in this marble graffiti wall to secure them from desecration. And then the Basilica of St. John Basilica for at least a thousand years
1: had kept the relic of the skull of St. Peter. And where, where they wondered, gee, were, are these the same bones? So when they did comparative tests on those bones, They concluded that the the, uh, bones in the Lateran reliquary uh, were identical to those found in the Vatican bones. And they speculated that the skull must have been removed from the rest of
0: the bones to preserve it. So given that evidence, uh, in February of 1968, an official report was presented to Pope Paul VI, and he concluded, quote, the bones have been identified in a way which can be told, held to be convincing. So today they're secured in 19 plus okay, look the in that same fucking repository asshole. where they were found. Okay, And uh, it's interesting. The Council of Trent said, quote, The sacred bodies of the holy martyrs and of the other saints living with Christ, which have been living members of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit, and which are destined to be raised and glorified by him unto life eternal should also be venerated by the faithful through them many benefits are granted by god so there was this um, gentleman who wrote a book called the bones of saint peter uh, john evangelist walsh his name is and he details that information of the discovery and the research of the excavations and what they found and so if you ever get to visit rome When this whole thing lifts. Uh, Be sure to take what's called the SCAVI tour, S-C-A-V-I, SCAVI tour. Um, The SCAVI tour is often led by seminarians from the North American College, and they're very knowledgeable, and they take you underneath St. Peter's Basilica, not the part where tourists usually see, but underneath that to the catacombs. And uh, all the excavations of the Necropolis you can visit. And then it ends, the SCAVI tour ends, right where the tomb of Peter is located. And you spend a few moments there, you know, venerating the tomb. So, has there ever been thought of running the DNA in this modern age? Oh, fuck you. Uh, they probably will at some point. You know? I think they're convinced pretty well because Me, of the, really? because of the position of the bones and
2: where they were found right under the high altar that those are definitely
0: Peter's. I mean, I don't know who else they could be. Okay. Now, let's, in the last part, we only have a few more, now a little bit more to, to go.
4: Let's talk about some of the historical tensions and the challenge of church unity. Because of the role of the Pope in preserving the unity of all the bishops, um, it's not surprising that
0: throughout church history, uh, the lines of church unity have uh, have stayed together or fallen apart on the basis of a particular stance toward the role of the Pope as the Bishop of Rome. Uh, Whether different churches recognize that, what they recognized about it, and so on and so forth. So, what I'd like to do in this les- this part of the lesson is to give just a little time to the
2: challenge of preserving that unity, and the way the tensions developed, uh, which sometimes threatened that unity, especially
0: um, with the Eastern churches in Rome. So, now throughout history, the churches of the East and the West, uh, in the first and second millennium did look to Rome, as I said earlier. Uh, for the resolution of otherwise uh, difficult problems. And the Bishop of Rome invoked their authority uh, as successors of St. Peter. And when they did that, it effectively resolved the matter, whatever the matter was. And there was a maxim that developed in the early church in Latin, Roma locuta est, causa finita est, in English, Rome has spoken, the cause is finished. That's attributed to St. Augustine, by the way. Uh, and so, for the sake of the doctrinal unity of the church, Rome often intervened and intervened successfully. I think a good example of that was at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. There was a dispute at the time about the nature of the unity between the human and divine natures of Christ in the one divine person uh, of Christ. The controversy was suggesting that uh, the unity between the human and divine natures in the person of Jesus was was such that uh, the human nature once brought into the unity with the divine person of God the Son, lost its consistency. Um, we call that monophysitism. It's a heresy, um, which it, it basically held that Christ had only one nature, presumably um, some mystical mixture of, of humanity and divinity. I like to think of it as this heresy as the shake-and-bake Jesus. Got it. Some of you got, the, got it I'm laughing. Some of you got it. You got it. You know, <laughs> the shake and bake Jesus. <laughs> take a little <laughs> bit of his human nature, a little bit of his divine nature, and just mix it up, and you got to shake and bake Jesus. Well, that's not what, you know, that just sounds strange, right? Uh, it was like his humanity was like a drop of water lost in the ocean of his divinity, right? Uh, it was... Um, and, and so it, it, the human nature of Jesus wasn't really important it wasn't even operative in and acting, in, in acting necessarily in the person of Jesus um, in his divinity the problem was that was that if we don't recognize our Lord's true humanity then we're taking away from him the very nature by which we are redeemed okay whatever, it, whatever ah. it, And most of these, as you've already studied, if you stayed in Christology, you would study all of this. Um, All the Christological heresies either denied or overemphasized the human nature over the divine nature or the divine nature over the human nature. But either way, we have a big problem. We're not saved, right? Whatever has not been assumed by the divine person has not been redeemed remember, Jesus redeemed us in his human as well as his divine nature okay Um, Pope Leo the Great wrote an important letter to this council articulating his belief in the unity of the divine person with a human and divine nature Uh, what do we call, you know what we call that in theology anyone oh dear it's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypostatic union. Exactly how it's pronounced. That's how it's spelled. It's from the Greek word hypostasis, which means substantive reality, the substance or reality. Okay. And Leo wrote this in a tome. It's called his tome. T-O-M-E, and it was read at the Council and the Council Fathers, as this was written into the Acts of the Council of the Chalcedon. It says, I I may have put it on your handout, after the reading of the foregoing epistle, the tome, the most reverend bishops cried out, this is the faith of the Fathers, this is the faith of the Apostles, so we all believe, thus the Orthodox believe, anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. The hypostatic union is something you want to know about, right? Oh shit. Not something a word you want to throw around in a catechism class. Although I have to tell you, when I was a pastor, um, I taught it to our DRE and she and she taught it to our third graders who, who went home, who went home and said, Mommy, I learned something new today. Have you ever heard of the hypostatic union? And the, kid, the parents would look at the kids like, what? What? What's that? Is that a new toy you want to buy? <laughs> they know, Mommy. It means that Jesus had a human and divine nature united to the one person of the Word. And even then, the parents didn't get it. But we taught them, right? So they would understand who Jesus is. And, you know, they, they, she broke it down in ways the kids could, could understand So this this was the attitude when Rome intervened to resolve a doctrinal problem, okay? It was St. Peter speaking through the Pope to preserve the unity of the College of Bishops and the unity of all Christians by extension, just as Peter had stood and spoken for the unity of the 12 apostles, okay? Now this idea of Roman primacy developed uh, differently in the East and in the West, although in some form it was recognized by both. In the West, the focus was generally on St. Peter's role um, and on the basis of, of Christ giving the keys to, to him and the promise of Jesus that we've already studied. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven, whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven, um, and his role to confirm the brethren. Um, Popes, as the bishops of Rome, as Peter's successors, were recognized as the supreme pastor of the universal church by divine right. And popes in their interventions made reference to their legacy from Saint Peter. Um, They recognized that, you know, and Jesus said uh, to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan is seeking to uh, demand all of you to sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you in turn must confirm the brethren. In the role of the Bishop of Rome among the churches in the West, um, that had a particular intensity um, more so than in the East where there were a number of sees, where apostles had preached. Remember, the apostles went out and preached in the East, right? Uh, And patriarchates were developed there, right? In Rome, the only apostolic locale was Rome herself. Um, And the lack of any other apostolic sees in the West, together with a certain vacuum, uh, even of secular authority, helped to bring about a very... Uh, centralized ecclesiastical governance in the West, um, so the Pope's role was very much intensified and accentuated. In the East, however, it was at least recognized that there there was a need for one bishop to be recognized as the natural presider over the universal gatherings of the bishops, and um, and also that only one ever to have exercised that role. And was recognized by all of them. doing so, uh, was the Bishop of Rome. So even in the East, that role was recognized the uh, Bishop of Rome. So there was this recognition in the East uh, by of the Roman primacy, even even then. And that's still the case today. I mean, even today, the East recognized this, right? If you were to ask many Orthodox uh, Christians why there has not been an ecumenical council that they recognize uh, since the 700s, they would say that it's impossible to have one without the participation of the one who would speak uh, with the voice of St. Peter, the Bishop of Rome. So there were no councils with Catholics and Orthodox together since the second council of Nicaea in 787 AD. But in the east, there were other cities where ancient apostolic preaching had been given. As I said, the apostles visited these cities, and uh, local traditions developed, such as different liturgies and uh, different spiritual traditions to serve, uh, to build up that distinctive particular church. Uh, They were all in full communion with Rome. But they enjoyed a lot of self-governance, too, and they got kind of used to that. Um, but I say there was no other local churches like that in the West, only in Rome. Okay. The patriarchates, as they're called, uh, within the former Roman Empire, were uh, there were, there were several major ones. Rome being one, Constantinople was another, Alexandria was another, Antioch was another, and Jerusalem was another. Those were the main. Uh, five patriarchates, as they call it, right? And when one of these patriarchates had a new bishop elected, he would send a letter to all the others expressing his communion with them, and that way the communion of the universe would be served and manifested. And since each of those sees enjoyed a particular kind of primacy within the sphere of other local churches, then the unity among all the other major apostolic sees, the ones I just mentioned, were preserved. And the unity of all the churches throughout the world, and the unity with Rome in particular, uh, preserved that unity of the universal church. Okay? So they were all in communion with one another. Okay? Now, Rome uh, always occupied first place among these patriarchies. And it was recognized by all the others. As such, so Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem—they uh, all recognized the primacy of Rome. Okay, uh, even in the East, you had this recognition of a need for and the actuality of the primacy of the Roman Pontiff. They—they they, they wouldn't have used the term, which they did use. Roman Pontiff was what they used. Okay, they would have simply said the Bishop of Rome. That's not what they that's not the expression they use, they use the title, Roman Pontiff. Pontifex Maximus in Latin means greatest priest. It was the chief, he was the chief high priest of the College of Pontiffs in ancient Rome. And the word Pontifex is a derivative of Pontiff um, that was used even for Catholic bishops, right? Um, Including the Bishop of Rome, right? And the title of Pontifex Maximus Pontifex meaning bridge builder was applied within the Catholic Church to the Pope as the chief bishop and appear, it appears on buildings, monuments coins of the Popes of the Renaissance and modern times you can still see it
1: okay Um.
0: The official list of titles of the Pope uh, are given and includes Supreme Pontiff. We all know that, right? Sumus Pontifex is one of the fourth titles.
1: So even so, the Eastern and Western churches drifted apart,
0: and the union between Rome and most of the Eastern churches uh, disintegrated for reasons that I think were all too human. Cultural differences um, between them, as well as the difference between the Latin language in the West and the Greek language in the East caused them to drift apart. Uh, There was a cultural divide that made it difficult for them. Uh, They had difficulty even agreeing on certain doctrinal formulations. Uh, And that was especially so with the crowning of Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor in the West because it made him a counterpart of the Eastern Emperor who had an important role in the Eastern Church. So unfortunately, uh, many of the causes of disunity among the churches were political in nature uh, or caused by a failure, even a failure in charity. Um, Eastern bishops um, sometimes objected to the tighter control of the Roman Pontiff that was exercised over his brother bishops in the West. Um, They objected uh, quite often uh, when they felt the Pope was attempting to exercise uh, some kind of central control in the East, the naming of local bishops, for example, uh, the formulation of a code of canon law for the entire church. Now, to defend the Popes, we have to see that in the Middle Ages, this is more of a History lesson right now in theology. Um, when the popes intervened and stressed their centralized Roman authority in the church, it wasn't to boost themselves. When the popes exercised a tight centralized governance of the West, it was often to defend local bishops from the encroaching powers of national and secular governments, of kings and stuff like that. Um, these were threats to the good of the church. So the popes felt they had to be very stern and and, and, and strict in centralizing their authority. Um, What came about gradually then, uh, though, unfortunately, was this rupture in unity between Rome and the other patriarchs of the East. Uh, There have been various periods of conflict and so on that were healed through reconciliation. But you probably already know this, but the date that is given for the definitive break between the West and the East is 1054 AD. When there was a mutual excommunication that was given between Rome in the person of Cardinal Hubert of Silva Candida, representing the Pope, you don't have to remember this, the names, and the Patriarch the of Constantinople, who basically they, ex- they excommunicated each other. And there were periods of disunity before that day, periods after this day too, um, but these things happened over periods of, of, of centuries uh, that kind of c- cemented this disunity. And once again, often political. Um, for example, and this is just, I'm just giving you an overview now. The seizure of Antioch by the Crusaders from the West Uh, who placed a Latin bishop as patriarch in 1098, you know, that didn't sit well. The sacking of Constantinople by the crusaders in 1204, leaving terrible animosity behind. Uh, That caused great harm to the unity of the church. There was a short-lived reunion at the time of the Council of Florence in the mid-1400s. Uh, the bishops at that council were able, actually, able to establish agreement for unity of the church between the East and West. But the union failed because it didn't, it didn't get uh, grassroots approval, grassroots support. The bishops had agreed to unity, but their people at home hadn't been taught about it, and so it failed at the grassroots. Unfortunately, um, maybe that wouldn't be the case today. You know because of our widespread technology and means of communication with the internet and everything. But back then, uh, things just didn't get down to the common people. So that shows how important it is for the faithful, really, to be to be sensitive to the need of unity among the churches. I think it's incumbent upon the Catholic and Orthodox and pews to want unity uh, as much as the bishops, and they should pray for that unity to come about. Um, the role of the Pope is particularly important in ecumenical dialogue. Uh, many of the problems that have uh, have to be settled entail the role of the Pope. Um, in ecumenical talks with the Orthodox, for example, they usually begin with basic points of, of uh, Christian doctrine uh, and Christology, which we all easily agree upon. But we have no disagreements with the Orthodox about basic points of doctrine and and Christology. Remember, they, they accepted the first uh, the councils up until uh, this, uh, the second Nicaea, right? Um, so they, they tackled those easier problems first, because they, they, were, they weren't really problems. Then they moved, move on to, to questions of sacramental theology, where there was considerable agreement uh, about the sacraments, the nature of the sacraments, even though they used different language the Orthodox call the sacraments the mysteries we call them the sacraments but we mean the same thing about them we all teach there are seven sacraments that convey grace instituted by Christ the Orthodox agree with us about all of that but then the last issue to be discussed was always the last one was the role of the pope, because it was the most thorny issue uh, and the most difficult one to solve Trying to come to an understanding, a common understanding, of the role of the bishop of Rome in the union of all the churches is a point where that union ultimately stands or fails. Um, Papal primacy can be seen as a gift uh, to the church and a contribution to unity, right? Um, But it shouldn't be seen as an obstacle, and yet it is. In our own times, no one has worked, no one worked more more diligently than Pope St. John Paul II and then his successor, Benedict XVI, in trying to bring about unity with the Eastern Orthodox. We've concentrated, even though we have dialogue with the other Protestant Communions, uh, we've signed agreements with some of the Lutheran churches, the Anglican Church, Certain doctrinal documents we would sign,
3: but they really wanted to focus more on the Orthodox because we're closest to them in doctrine and in faith
0: and morals. They believe as we do in most of of the moral teachings. Um, So this 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 is a challenge of dialogue today between the East and the West, Um, but. The role of the Pope as successor of Peter uh, and the way he exercises that authority um, has to be, uh, I think, recognized in time by the East. Could it be possible for Christians uh, from the East and the West to be united, but not be under a code of canon law issued by the Pope? Maybe. Um, under the Roman primacy, the Pope is the court of last appeal. But uh, how, how that role is exercised maybe is a question that could be examined in ecumenical dialogue. Another example might be his role in naming bishops. Um, in the East, uh, there, are, are, there are synods that elect bishops, right? Um, he does this in the West and you know it's fine in the West, uh, but you know, I don't see why that should be a problem. So we need to pray for I guess this whole point of this talk is that we should pray for the unity of the church, especially for a reunion of the East and the West, uh, because we've been separated for, uh, you know, almost a thousand years. And there is less theological disunity between these churches than there is between the Catholics and the Protestants. With the Protestants, we have the problem of uh, they only ex- they, they don't accept seven books in the Bible, the Old Testament that are not they don't believe are canonically inspired. They threw out five of the seven sacraments. They only believe in two, and and they don't believe we accept their baptism, but we don't believe they don't believe the same thing we believe about the
4: Eucharist. You can go to the, any any one of those ecclesial communions: Methodists, Congregationalists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, uh, Baptists. They, they'll all give you a different theology of the Eucharist so it's a lot harder barring divine intervention barring divine intervention where you know
0: somehow or other they're convicted of what the truth is um, it's going to be a lot harder with them than it would be with the Orthodox and until that day comes we can't enjoy intercommunion together see we don't see ecumenical dialogue as the means of communion we see it as the goal of communion so the catholic church will not invite non-catholics to receive the eucharist until we are we have nailed down we have true unity in doctrine and morals faith and morals once we have that if we ever get to it then we would celebrate a genuine unity by coming to the sacrament of unity, which is the Holy Eucharist, and that's tr- that's true also with the Orthodox. Um, from the Catholic point of view, the Orthodox could receive communion in our churches, um, but they don't. They're told not to, and we technically could receive the Eucharist in their their divine liturgy, because it's the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. They have maintained the apostolic succession. Their priests are true priests of the New Testament. Truly confect the Eucharist in a different different liturgy, different way than we do. But they don't want us to receive. You would never go into an orthodox, let's say you went to an orthodox um, wedding or funeral or something, you would never approach communion out of respect for their wishes. So, um, St. Paul, St. John Paul II spoke of the reunion of the church once again. When that happens, we will be able to breathe with both lungs. Both lungs, that's how we put it. You know, East and West, both with their rich traditions, believing the same faith, sharing the same beliefs and faith and morals, uh, coming to an understanding of the role of the papacy in relationship to both and celebrating a genuine unity. So we pray for that. And uh, maybe, who knows, maybe maybe we'll even live to see it someday. Our Lady of Fatima had promised in the end my Immaculate Heart will triumph. And we don't really know what that means, but I can't imagine that a world where the Immaculate Heart of Mary has triumphed would remain in disunity, where Christianity would remain in disunity. Uh, maybe we're getting closer to that time and even this current crisis uh, dear students I would say in my opinion uh, I don't see it so much as it's not a punishment from God a chastisement some have said that but I do think God is trying to get our attention he's permitting it for a higher good to get our attention uh, we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. Um, it's something you'd, you'd, you'd see in a sci-fi movie, right? Uh, going to the Walmart, supermarkets, and everywhere, there's no scott towels, there was no water, no toilet paper. I mean, the shelves are empty, people are hoarding things, people are afraid. But I think God will bring good out of this. Can only pray for that. So that's all I've got tonight. Good. Any comments?
4: Observations? Questions? So, Father, we we call schism a sin. Yes, it is one of the four. Remember on your midterm. Yeah, sorry. I did, but. but You fucked up. I have a hard time thinking of it as a sin in the sense that if the Orthodox. With, truly believe that that Rome was usurping power unfairly and you know, they're not at, and they're acting prayerfully in the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how it's sinful. It's like saying All right, wait, it, let me even,
0: hang hang on a minute. I know what you're getting at, and you know, I, I wanna just make a self correction, okay? Um, The sin, to be more precise, the sin of schism and apostasy, um, even, you know, even heresy for that matter, um, was, those, those were sins committed by those who actually broke, originally broke with the church. So I would say that Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the rest of them were guilty of those sins. And the Eastern Church at the time, that broke with Rome, broke with the unity of... You never break unity with the church for whatever reason. You just don't. Um, that's very displeasing to God. Christ prayed for unity at the Last Supper. Um, he wants His church to be one. That's one of the marks of the church. So I would say they committed those sins. But you can't commute com- uh, compute to people today the sin of Sism. Uh, or even a, a heresy, for that matter, um, because they're not at fault. They didn't. They didn't create this division. They were born into the churches. They were born into the Orthodox. You know, Orthodox Christian is born into an Orthodox family and practices faith and good, with good will. He's not guilty of schism, and he's not guilty of heresy. And I don't think any of the Protestants really are either. Um, I mean, a guy who, uh, a man or woman who's who's born into a, the Baptist Church, practices his faith, what, what else does he know? Unless he studies theology or he comes in contact with a Catholic or a priest or like like um, Scott Hahn did, you know, he started studying history and councils and all that, he came to believe that the Catholic Church is the Church of the True Church of Christ. But I don't think we can say well, those people are committing sins. Does that help explain it better? Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that. But I'm, I'm even getting to the
4: very the patriarchs who, who removed themselves from Rome. If they did it in good faith, believing that it was Rome who, who had exceeded their power. If, I mean, can, how, isn't sinfulness also a question of, of, you know, whether you believe you're doing wrong? Yes, but, but no, 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 no. You can you can have a you can have a warped conscience that is not
0: guided by truth, but patriarchs knew should have known better. I mean, the East had always recognized the primacy of Rome and the the Pope having supreme authority over the Church and everything we, we had we taught, had in this lesson tonight. To break with that for any reason, and might to, to cause schism to cause a tear in the body of Christ was gravely sinful. And, you know, they've answered to God for that. How God judged them, I don't know. But you just don't do that for any reason. Even if you think that Rome was acting a little too strongly, it's part of our faith. You don't break you don't, you don't. break with that. You know? and look what it's caused. Look at the harm it's caused through the centuries. The animosity and everything else. Now, that's not to say that that um, we even had bad, some bad popes throughout history, but none of them, none of those popes ever uh, taught heresy or broke with faith and morals. You know, uh, am I getting through to you? Yep, yep, good.
1: Okay, so it's uh, almost twenty after nine. Robert? Yes, John. Uh, There was no my handout for the second part of your talk. There wasn't? I'll send it when I can, okay? Thank you.
0: Okay.
2: All right. there's just one other quick question. Yes. Uh, You had spoken about the, uh, when you were speaking about uh, Latin terms, you had greatest priest and then you also had bridge builder.
0: Yeah. Pontifex means uh, bridge builder. Okay. And um, Pontius Maximus is the great, the greatest, the greatest priest. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Hey, Father, one, one last uh, point.
4: Yeah. One of the books that we had got to choose for our book review is by Whitehead. Yeah. It, I can't tell you how good a book. That is mm. on early church. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I've read fifty of them, but it's written, it's written to in a way that you know, I, I as a master's student, even the lady could understand. Mm-hmm. But he goes right. through it so beautifully, and you mm-hmm. with the way he writes that. Thank you for even, you know, giving us. I
2: the, agree. I, I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah, good. I hope uh, many of you, uh, well, you could choose any one of those books for your book review. Uh, By the way, that is due at the very last class day, right, I believe, so, Um, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, I I should fill you in a little bit um, before we close the prayer. Um, We had a faculty meeting today, and um, as you know, probably from watching the news, that uh, a state of emergency has been declared in Westchester County. Now there are, I guess, over 250 cases. Um, That's almost 100 or more since last week. Um, We're all trying to figure out from week to week uh, what we're going to be doing um, to keep things going at the seminary. But from now on, from now on, unless we hear otherwise, um, looks like our classes may, for the rest of the semester, may have to be taught by Zoom. Um, we were hoping the seminarians might be able to come back. Uh, you all know they're gone, right? They, they, yeah. they, were, they were told to leave Thursday night uh, last week and uh, they're getting their classes by Zoom as well. And uh, I, don't, I can't foresee they're gonna be able to come back anytime soon so and there isn't that much time left in the semester i mean what another five weeks or so maybe uh six weeks if that not even well there's a technique next week at easter so that's right um so next next monday we don't
4: meet because it's the break right and then the following week we don't meet right because it's easter monday no i don't i think it's the week after that fall okay next week, today mm-hmm. I don't have the syllabus in front of me 20, yeah, today, the uh, next week is the 22nd mm-hmm. we have but the 20 but the 29th we have class the sixth we have class I think the Easter is the 12th the yeah, next week is the 23rd there is no class the following uh, week we do have class that would be the uh, 30th of March. Uh, and then after that, uh, there would be no class on uh, on uh, April. Uh, no, we have class April sixth, which is right. the Monday after Palm Sunday, right. and then on uh, when, on Monday April thirteenth, no class. That's the day right. it'd be. Okay. And when is the, when is the date for your mint, uh, final exam? Who cares. Uh, we have that as um, last May four, I Think May fourth. Or... Okay. Uh, if worse comes to worse,
0: uh, I'll give the final. Uh, I found out uh, there is a way, I tell the seminarians, you're not going to escape my quizzes. I give my spiritual theology class, they have five quizzes based on the reading plus two exams. They think they're going to be uh, off the hook for these quizzes because they're not in class period. ha! Father Bruno showed me how to give a quiz and how to give an exam properly basically basically you just write out the exam you post it on Popoly, uh just as the class is about to begin when everybody's there and then they take it and take the exam uh, on Popoly and post it back on Popoly with all the right answers and then i then i just print them out and correct them. all right. how days are here again okay
4: Father, I'll agree to prop to John if necessary. <laughs>
2: you you hear that? <laughs> said. Don't encourage him, Father. <laughs> all right, all right. Listen to be in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Hail,
4: Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To Thee do we cry, for banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, yes. and light of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O Clement, O, o, loving, o, loving, o loving, O sweet virgin, pray, pray for us, O most holy Mother of God,
0: that the we worthy of the promise. Of Christ. Christ. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son spirit amen, amen. 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 Blessings, blessings travel thank you
2: thank you father thank you Father.
0: So, Stay all, all of you, you. are my prayers thank i remind everything for you that everyone is spared this scourge and we'll see you then uh two weeks from tonight